0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show, politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy the right show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, Paul. Hi, Bob. How you doing? I can't complain. Uh, let me introduce you i some Robert Wright. This is the right show available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Paul Bloom, famous psychologist at Yale, author of many books, at least one of which I think I, I plan to uh, bring into play today as we talk. I'm going to leave you in suspense as to which one, Paul. Just let you worry. Um, but first, I want to say you've managed to get a haircut since we... Uh, last time you were on, we discussed... The hair, maybe we did it after we quit recording and we discussed so, yeah. the haircut problem amid the uh, pandemic. And I recommended that you transition toward a man bun. You have not done that. Um, you've gotten, uh, was that cut by a professional?
1: It was cut by, uh, by my partner, uh, uh-huh. who did a very professional job on it.
0: Yeah. It's not a real sculpted look, I would say. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I
1: feel like you're setting me up for something. <laughs>
0: Cut? <laughs> no, it just seems a little different from your average cut. It's, I like it. It's a good yeah. it's uh anyway, I digress. So here's the thing. I
1: somehow I feel like this is just I just been insulted.
0: No, and no, no. And this no, this no, is no. gonna be running
1: on Twitter as a little clip.
0: No, no, no. Sculpted anyway. can be good, sculpted can be sculpted.
1: bad. Yeah. Yeah. Some people like I also, Michelangelo. I also, I also did people. a whole a whole COVID shave.
0: You know, know I admire that, and I respect that, and I I thank you for taking my platform so seriously. I can't say I did the same, but... So, here's the thing. There's no shortage of things going on in the world. There is, as we record this, there is civil unrest in the United States, as is well known. Um, But, when we arranged this podcast, we were not... uh, We didn't know that that was going to happen. weren't planning to talk about it, and... By and large, we're not going to. We're going to proceed as planned, talk about the other big story, pandemic, and maybe the psychology of some some, psych, some pandemic-related yeah. psychology. But at the end of this, I do want to talk a little uh, about the civil unrest to the extent that um, you feel comfortable, and to the extent that your position as a Canadian, who in fact is in Canada as we speak, permits you to actually say anything um a value. Not that I'm not that it's impossible yeah. a Canadian could can say something of value about this, but it's a different different perspective.
1: So I'm actually a citizen of both Canada and the United States. I, I carry uh, two passports. I was oh. born in born in Canada, but uh uh my mom was from the States and I live in the States given that I, I teach at Yale University. Uh but it's true I'm feeling very Canadian these these days. I'm in Toronto for the duration. I um I, uh, and maybe because of that, I really shouldn't opine on American matters. You Americans, if you're Donald Trump and you're Joe Biden, uh, I don't know. There should be something about, you know, people contributing foreign money to campaigns. What about foreign
0: ideas? You think that should be banned? Eh, Maybe. I'll
1: tell you, a lot of people have asked me, how's the pandemic going in Toronto? And- I would think maybe surprisingly at a concrete level, it's not any different from any big American city. We're opening up. Um, I think a lot of people were in masks on the street, but some aren't. A lot of people are following social distancing, but some aren't. There's are stories about people, there's stories of, for instance, people illegally cutting hair. You can, mm, could,
0: not that you know anyone
1: who, <laughs> not that I know. but if you, if you know a guy, you could find somebody, you could, you could kind of Uber over to their place and they give you a little, a little cut.
0: And if anybody needs a haircut, should they get in touch with you? Could your no, Could no. your partner use a little yeah. uh, extra No, cash? no.
1: I I don't want to I don't want to be the sort of middleman for those sorts of interactions okay. which are illegal. Okay. Um so so day to day it's kind of it's kind of the same. I don't think it's it's substantially different from being in um in New Haven or New York or you know, Princeton or wherever. Um there is a different feeling, you know, uh even putting aside uh the current situation with the with the unrest, uh the police brutality, the riots and all of that, uh, which Canada is, is sort of not not in the midst of. Even beyond that, there is a feeling of having relatively competent leadership.
0: Oh, so, and you're definitely talking and, about Canada yeah, right now, right? I definitely not about Canada. So mm-hmm.
1: you know, uh, Justin Trudeau is is the prime minister, um Rob Ford is the Premier of Ottawa, Rob Ford is a uh, Sorry, Doug Ford. I was um, gonna say, isn't yeah. Rob
0: Ford kind of not a good example of it wasn't Rob Ford the, he's not the the crackhead?
1: He was the crackhead, yes. Mayor was the crackhead. The crackhead
0: mayor or something?
1: Uh I think he was a crackhead mayor. I know Doug Ford is is his brother.
0: Oh, and, really? But not, not a crackhead.
1: Not a crackhead, a very strong conservative use, hmm.
0: uh
1: not well liked among the liberal community, uh thought of as a bit of a wild man. But not but a crackhead. He, but and it's true, and he has stepped up. He has stepped up. He has people's, everybody says his leadership has been competent and serious um, and the opposite of what you have in the United States. So just not having Trump looming over one it is a sigh of relief. Now, there's no escaping Trump, but still, the feeling in Toronto is that we're under relatively rational uh, management. I think that's there's a feeling in
0: a lot of countries. Yeah. That they're yeah. under relatively... Yeah. Rational.
1: And, you know, so at one point they said, we're going to open up this at this time. And then they look at the data and say, no, we've changed our minds. It's going to be another week or this and that. And you have a feeling people are actually and people just. People
0: go, OK, you probably thought say, about okay, it. OK, you
1: know, you, you thought about it and everything. And um, and, you know, the the, the situation of Trump has never been good. And uh, and for everybody who says, well, how bad could it be? Now we know.
0: Tell me when you were uh now I gather until the pandemic you were actually in New Haven to teach. did That's you right. feel more uh i don't know want to say oppressed whatever the feeling is of living in a country that is that is whose president is donald trump a feeling i i think I can safely infer you find unpleasant what yeah. what was is there a big difference in in being on the other like is there a sense of escape once you cross the border and in relief into Canada
1: yeah it, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, I'm reading everybody here. We talk about Trump. We talk about Biden. Half of the people I connect with are, are Americans or ex Americans. So you don't get away from it. But there is a feeling of, of, and of course, the President of the United States has power over the world. I mean, it, it plainly affects us. But still, the answer is yes. Yes, it is, it is, it is a relief to be in Toronto. Um, you may want to consider, um, crossing the border
0: we thought about it yeah yeah we have good Maybe. friends who uh own a cabin somewhere in the east uh, uh, near water near, near near the atlantic ocean there's, um, there's a fair amount of water in canada yeah i'm told and i yeah.
1: There's there's only one thing i'm discovering about toronto i don't want to get too much into my what i'm up to personally but suppose you wanted to get a house with a. Two, three bedrooms, maybe two bathrooms and everything. You wouldn't expect to have to pay, you know, one and a half million dollars. But maybe you have to pay under one and a half million dollars. And Vancouver, our other, Canada's other wonderful city, is even worse. Hmm. Well, Montreal, where I'm from, is more recent.
0: You, you're, you're, but you're not a Francophone, right?
1: No, I'm not a Francophone. I am, I am uh, one of Les Autres. I'm a, a Jewish Montrealer from, uh, mm-hmm. So, so, gotta, um, yeah, say,
0: whatever house you're in now, I would stick with, I mean, you, you, I'm almost wondering if you've been doing CNN hits lately, because you look so much better than the average guest, average pandemic era guest on a cable news network. I mean, for our, for our audio or for our listeners, I just want to say, you've got this little Victorian era stained glass lamp on one side. On the other side, big glass window that with a garden view, but not so bright that it's blowing out your face. You know the light. Then these lovely flowers. Oh, and look, a ladder so that you can reach the highest levels of your extensive bookshelf. That's nice. I mean, look, I I I don't I don't mean to get I didn't mean to veer into critical, but uh, it's it's just I'm not saying it's too nice. It's just it's at least nice enough.
1: So um so I, I assume you're making a little bit of fun of me, because if you if you don't like that, you could have this.
0: Oh, it was fake? <laughs> yes. You have me totally fooled. Was,
1: I am very glad to hear that. Oh my god. No
0: wonder the light wasn't blowing your face out. It was <laughs> fake light. So I
1: prefer to move to this office.
0: Now now it's more obvious.
1: <laughs> yes, this
0: yes. In this I, one. Now, maybe this is why I was saying your hair isn't very sculpted, because it had that oh, little... Oh, I see. Uh, it had that oh, aura it gets, around. It gets cut off. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay.
1: Yes. So, okay. Um, so basically, a lot of people have taken... A lot of academics I know, particularly those without young kids, have taken advantage of the pandemic to get research done and write scientific papers. Me, I've been doing a lot of Zoom backgrounds. So yeah. I got some Zoom movie backgrounds, some Zoom thing backgrounds. It could take up a lot of time.
0: Yeah. So, uh, those, I mean, the first one was really, really compelling. I'm glad. I'm glad you like it.
1: Um, the, the people who are listening to this, they are really going to be disappointed. Well, by I tried
0: it. to do such a, you know, a lovely oral rendition of the of the scene it's, it's, that it, yeah. it, they'll feel as if they were there. But maybe you're right. Maybe we should start getting less visual, and more conceptual. So, speaking of the pandemic, do you feel that it's your role as a psychologist, Paul, to tell us all how to think about the pandemic? So. We
1: spoke a little bit about this and, um, there, there's among a community of psychologists, there are varying reactions to the pandemic. So a lot of us are publishing about, are writing theoretical articles and empirical articles. There is, my understanding is there's been a publication bump where a lot of people are publishing a lot of papers, really social psychologists, mostly social psychologists, some clinical psychologists, mostly social psychologists, um, where they opine and report experiments on the, on the effects of COVID on our society, on us. They make projections. Um, I often get papers to review coming out like twice a day. I get requests and often I'm told this is an expedited thing. We'd like your review very quickly, uh, like two, three days because of the urgency of the situation. Um, and probably the biggest thing was, uh, there was a, a paper published by, a couple of dozen of top academics uh, in uh, Nature, Human Behavior, one of our big journals. And it included, I was led by uh, Jay Van Bavel, a friend of mine, mm-hmm. a social psychologist at mm-hmm. NYU. I've, I've, you know, I've
0: had him on, yeah.
1: Uh, really smart guy. I had an all-star cast, like Cass Sunstein was in the paper and other people in the paper. And it just summarizes what psychologists tells us about, about COVID. And to be perfectly honest, there's another paper which is under review that I am an author on which we Mm. which we lay our opinions about psychology tells us but there's a backlash and despite the fact that i'm part of the problem i'm also a little bit sensitive to the backlash and backlash is we are running our mouths off on things we just don't know that much about
0: when you say sensitive you mean you're a little sympathetic to the backlash
1: i'm a little bit sympathetic to it yeah i'm a little bit sympathetic to it um i think uh i i you know jay has talked a lot about this on twitter he makes the point saying look Our ideas are imperfect, our research is imperfect, but it's better to have imperfect information, imperfect ideas than none at all. And we're to have mere
0: mortals opining on the pandemic. People like you. Right. You
1: know, so, so, um, but my worry is people take our work much too seriously. And, and we are, uh, can I just add that's
0: not as big a problem in psychology as it was five years ago, but.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah it's just it's true we, <laughs> they're,
0: they're, the discipline has had a couple of problems
1: yeah yeah so 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 you think I' trying to think too much of myself to say it's a big problem how people treat us like gods <laughs>
0: yeah yeah well i'm I'm not saying I'm just saying it's more like demigods now, I yeah. guess I would say, give after yeah. the replication crisis than it was yes. before, but
1: yeah and so so um there's there's a really nice paper by a very heated paper blog post by uh Stuart Ritchie. Outline the case against psychologists, and, and other things have started to appear in journals. Um, some psychologists are upping their publication rate by publishing articles, attacking those other psychologists who are writing articles. But, I mean, take the paper that Jay wrote, which I think is just is really interesting, and the sort of paper I'm, I, I could use as a resource in many ways. So he brings into a section on conspiracy theories, About COVID, and that's sort of for me a go-to thing. I want to read the psychology of conspiracy theories. So I think it's great it was published. But at the beginning of the paper, they list a bunch of policy recommendations, and without exception, the policy recommendations are stuff you didn't need a psychologist to tell you. It's stuff like um, like when spreading when when trying to communicate health information, people defer to trusted sources. People are persuaded by a combination of the emotions and reason. You know, often in times of trouble, people retreat to their in-group, but not always. And and it's there. There and there's nothing. There's there's nothing there to make you gasp to the extent that sometimes they say controversial things in the article. I don't believe them, but it just seems to be in some way a sort of liberal folk wisdom, not not you know reasonable reasonable ideas. Um, with the sort of stamp of, of, science behind it. And there are worse things, but it's not, it, it's not like, um, it's not like you have, uh, uh, experts on viruses talking about COVID and don't tell you things you didn't know before mm. that are really serious and important. We don't do that yet.
0: Now, the Richie piece, I think that's, uh, the one I glanced at that, that you sent me the link to. Uh, he seemed to be, um, Pointing to a number of cases where psychologists and or other academics such as Cass Sunstein, uh, as I recall, just kind of got it wrong. In other words, they came out of the gate pretty fast in the early phase and warned against excessive concern, sure. excessive anxiety. And in retrospect, they themselves arguably understated the actual extent of the risk and, and the severity of the crisis, right?
1: Yeah. And you could say that the part they got wrong was in psychology. But, you know, so if they said, like, people are right. panicking about this. It's plainly not a pandemic. People are overreacting. Let's explore what goes on in that. But I think there's a real criticism here to be made, though, which is if your theory is powerful enough, powerful in the sort of way that it could explain, as it were, um, Anything somebody does, from taking it too seriously to not seriously enough, no matter what you do, I have an explanation for it. You're not really explaining anything, you know. If, yeah. if 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 you say if you say, "Oh, I don't care about the pandemic. I'm not following social distancing," it's just. And I say, as a psychologist, I can nail down exact that's exactly what I would expect you to do. And if you say you're freaking out and panicking and overdoing, and I say, and as a psychologist, I explain that's exactly what I would expect you to do. I'm not explaining anything.
0: No. On the other hand, if some people do freak out and some don't, or people freak out under some circumstances, not others. In principle, psychology should have an explanation of why sometimes one happens and not do. now. As you put yes. it, as you put it, I could have predicted that that could turn out to be a pretty weaselly thing. Uh, but but um, but in theory, psychology should have all the answers. <laughs> I guess yes, saying. yeah,
1: that's that's the business we're in. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's the Karl Popper idea that you distinguish science from right. well, from bullshit or from anything else in terms of falsifiability. Science right. makes claims that could be proven false. Now, nobody takes that seriously as an absolute demarcation. There, there's all sorts of reasons why a real science might make claims that are very hard to falsify, but the general idea is true, which is if somebody comes at you with a claim. And no matter what you do, they could—they have a claim. They would capture it. They're not really telling you anything interesting. And and too much of our psychology is like that. Um, you know, and and then and then there's um there's a more local issue I become a little bit interested in, which is there are people who are making very very optimistic claims about how this is going to affect us. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Jamil Zaki, this, this brilliant professor at, at Stanford, has coined a term, I think it's a catastrophe compassion hmm. and ways in which we are getting better and nicer to each other. And I think that's a really nice perspective on the world as very positive as Jamil is. I don't think the evidence for that is actually very weak.
0: So is the idea that in days of yore you would hear about an earthquake halfway around the world and say, oh, screw them, but now you send them money or something?
1: There's different ideas. One idea is that this global pandemic has brought us all together.
0: And, That's and I, not consistent with my own observations, but maybe I'm spending too much time in America. Go ahead.
1: So so it's true in, in some sense. This, meet, this meets up with the obvious fact that people are experienced in very different ways. You know, you are experiencing it in a beautiful house lined with books. But if you were in India... These are, these are and, real
0: books, by the way. <laughs> <really>? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know, in the end, does it really matter?
0: No, nope. I should. I, if you haven't read them, the
1: them no. Nope. By the way, you should be able to curate your Zoom bookshelf to choose exactly the right books for in there. That is an idea which is going to make somebody a lot of money if they're listening to me right now.
0: If I were Just, you, I would I would turn to that as soon yeah. as we finish this conversation.
1: So, um, so uh, in in a way, we're experiencing it very differently, and and the statistics bear this out. Men men die more than women. Um, blacks die more than whites. Um,
0: in the long run, I would say men can't die more than women. But I take your point. Oh, oh I see. Of, this of, disease, COVID. Okay, of co- okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was. I yeah. thought I was making a very subtle but astute point. <laughs> like,
1: like arguing with Jesuits.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, um, pandemic, yeah.
1: If, if, if you're rich and living in a mansion, you can experience a pandemic very differently than someone who's, who's poor. But on the other hand, I have never had an experience in my life where the whole world, was experienced this. I, got, I read this New York Times headline and it said, it was like a month ago, half the world is on lockdown. And I think half the freaking world. Wow. What, is, that, what a,
0: is that true?
1: I York mean, Times. I guess
0: because nominally, like India is on lockdown,
1: right? Yeah. Big country. A lot of people. Um, you know, China, a lot of China. And, um, you know, so, so yeah. In that sense, I feel this commonality. I mean, what else? What else is the same thing? I mean, if, if you, I'm right. sure everybody in the world heard about the September 11th attacks. But you know, if you're a commodities trader in you know in Nairobi, maybe whatever you hear about it, and you, you wonder what it affects you. And if you're somewhere, you may, may not matter. The, the death of Princess Diana, even World War II, affects everybody in the world in a different way, and some not at all. Yeah this affects just about everybody. And so so it's not crazy to say it could bring us together in that way.
0: Well, it's not crazy. I mean, it also it is a non-zero sum problem. In theory, we could yes. benefit from cooperating. At the same time, there are zero sum aspects as usual. If there aren't enough surgical masks for everyone in the world, that's a zero sum game and and so on. So, um it, you know, but but in a kind of generic way, you would hope that a common peril, that, you know, it, it's non-zero-sum in the sense that when someone gets sick anywhere in the world, to some extent, that is bad for me. To some, yes. however infinitesimally, it actually increases the chances that I will eventually get the disease. So yes. it, it is non-zero-sum in that minimal sense. But, I uh, you know, I've got to say, I mean, and this is a real um, just disappointment of mine that uh, you would hope that both internationally and intranationally it might have a cohesive effect, but it seems to me mainly it's had the opposite. I mean, the two most salient group psychological features of it, to me, are almost like the tribalization of of it in America. The the kind of the way it it has it has you know in synergy yeah. with the with the polarization of uh, the political polarization that we had even before it. It has. It has created two different, seemingly different perspectives on it, depending on whether you're in Red America or Blue America. Yeah. Not that that's an entirely um, consistent effect, but but you know, statistically, it's pretty. It's actually pretty it's actually en-
1: enormous the difference between people's how people answer the question of yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, are, is lockdown justified? Should you wear a mask? What's going to happen next? You by knowing whether somebody is Republican or Democrat, you predict an enormous amount yeah. about it.
0: Now, to some extent, that reflects their actual, accurate assessment of the situation. In other words, people, whether you're in a red part of a blue state yeah. or of a yeah. red state, you are less likely to be imperiled, at least certainly in the early stages, because it was largely an urban thing. So, you know, that's it's that's that, right. it's that's not just partisan psychology, but it clearly has taken on a partisan dimension. And that's been, uh, to some extent, stoked by politicians, uh, none of whom we need name. Uh, and yeah. there have been politicians on both sides. But then internationally, we seem to be on the verge of a Cold War with China. I mean, yeah. it's like we, this may create a – not that this is the only factor, and in some ways the ground had already been prepared for this, but a an, this could be a, an epic cleavage in the world that lasts for decades. Yeah. And, and, you know, where, where, once again, as during the Cold War, there are trade blocks, you know, that, that's what a number of people in America are advocating. It's like, we should just trade with democracies, we should whatever. And, um, so, I, I, I uh, I'm not a highly optimistic person, but I have to say, I think even I have been slightly disappointed.
1: Um, and it could have turned out differently. You could have, we could have had a different leader.
0: Well, different we leadership, have, uh, and, yeah, and not we, only not only presidential leadership, you know, in in Congress yeah. too, uh, but certainly presidentially, could have been different.
1: We could have not had an election coming up.
0: That which, too. I, well, that is totally amped up the anti-China rhetoric because yeah. it's like dueling, uh, you know, dueling nationalism uh, along this dimension at least between Biden and Trump in their in yep. their ads. No, I yep. mean, you know, Trump, uh, it's, it's like I was thinking, you know, people have, I mean, this is getting back to the other big story of the day, but, um, people have been saying, uh, where's the leadership from Trump on the, as, you know, the nation is in flames, the cities are in flames. I'm not sure, given how much polarization we have and how polarizing he is, I'm not sure there's anything, he, Well, it's two questions. Is there anything, is there a speech he could give that would be unifying? I'm not sure the answer to that is yes. And then there's the question of, is there a speech that he plausibly could want to give that would be unifying? I'm pretty sure the answer to that is, well, I don't know. But, but, but it's, you know, so both of, uh, both of these, these problems have arrived at a time when when you know at least america was in no position to address anything with unity i guess i would say
1: and and, and as you said this wasn't this was this would be the situation that has extraordinary potential for a, a non-zero-sum analysis and for for a solution mm-hmm. that would benefit everybody this is like this is like old social social psychology 101 which is everything we know about in-group and out-group behavior says the way to bring the whole planet together is for the aliens to attack And then we would all come together with a common enemy. Right. Well, now we have the common enemy, and look what's happened. And, you know, there were signs it could have been promising. I think there was a case where uh, China donated a lot of mass and health equipment to another country, and there were these these donations across nations, and, you know, it could have gone that way. It could have, but it does not seem to be looking that way.
0: Now, in in Canada, uh, what's the attitude toward China these days? In America, it has turned pretty sharply negative. I mean, that's what the polls say, is, is that- on, on the left as well? I don't know on the left, but if you look at the- Well, I'm sure to some extent on the left, yes, but- But I mean, if you look at just the aggregate national numbers, it's like a big swing, uh, in terms of how many people view China negatively, it's- It's a clear majority now.
1: Yeah, I don't, I haven't, I haven't seen polling data. I, I have seen data that you just talked about the red, blue distinction in the states looking at a conservative liberal distinction in Canada and, and w- how that affects how you think about COVID related issues. And the answer is it actually has very little effect. There's a slight difference in how much they blame Trudeau <laughs> for not acting properly and so on, <laughs> but the differences are not enormous. And you don't, it's just most people, this is not politicized in Canada to the same extent. And so, I would guess based on that, nobody's talking about China. Nobody's, yeah. you know, and in part it's because Canadian politics isn't the same as American politics, where American politics is sort of fundamentally connected to the world in a way that everyone's observing, and not so much in Canada. But but um, I sometimes think whether the fact that we have a, that there's a two-party system in the States turns everything bad, in a way you don't get what well, place to have multiple parties
0: mm-hmm. because
1: there's there's not this sort of um, Manichean is that the word Manichean
0: Manichean, Manichean I, I think Manichean yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and I only read things you know yeah, I'm well, not a guy who would mispronounce words because I only read them but Manichean you know there's
0: a surprising amount of that now but I digress <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, mean, that? Like, well, mean, I was just listening to this book by Ross Do a very good book, uh, and what word did he – oh, damn it, it'll come to me. But he's young, and, and it seems to me more common among young people, and, and it just surprises me because I had thought of them as very oral and, and, and like absorbing a lot of things on YouTube and and blah, and blah, yeah. but, but you hear among younger people, such as yourself – uh yeah. not that not that it's, i it's, it's, never, it's, that it's, I it's never so never yeah. mind it is i'm sorry i interrupted you i'll shut up go ahead no, I,
1: it's bringing back this memory i think from college where i said to, to appear smart i said epitome and we looked at me
0: oh that reminds me of, oh what did i say oh uh goth you've heard of the german oh, go- yeah
1: why not goth why not goth it looks like goth it's like goethe how are you supposed to resolve that from first principles
0: Man, and you know, I truly, I was afflicted rightly with imposter syndrome. I mean, I had come from like an alien culture into a, you know, Eastern, anyway.
1: As a psychologist, the the you're talking to the right there. guy.
0: Scars are still there. So back but, to the word, back to monachianism.
1: So the hypothesis, which I, all I have, I'm just basing this on like the single example. But it's not a bad prediction to say any place that's going to have... Only two parties are effectively two parties. The parties will polarize the country because you have to choose sides. You know, there's an in-group and an out-group, one of each, and then you're kind of locked in. Well, if a place has multiple parties like Canada and like most countries are at least more than one, which would be, which is also, one is also has its problems, but multiple political parties, you don't have to choose in the same way. There's no immediate enemy, you know? If, if you're a liberal, you know you're against. You might be against the NDP. You might be against the, the conservatives. It's it's more complicated, and there's coalitions, and there's yeah. this and there's Well, you that. have
0: a parliamentary system, and that's different. Yeah. And, that's and I different. think better personally, but
1: it has its advantages. Yeah. Um, so to go back to the sort of optimism, there's another thing which is, I think, connects a lot to your interests, but um, um. There's a book by uh, do i don't have it here by
0: Paul. Those books Br- are fake. Do not look <laughs> oh, around. No, I, I, <laughs> oh, you mean in your real environment? Let, the let one I can't reach, see. Let me reach back. By and, the way, and, what does your real environment look like? I'm curious. Can you just turn that off? I I can. Are you ashamed? Are you and, ashamed, Paul?
1: Well, now I'm I'm, I'm wondering exactly um <laughs> what what I should have actually. Well, anyway, put away don't my reach for before. one of
0: those books because they no, hate no, no, them, but, but I will, Okay,
1: but here I will um I will do this how's that?
0: Oh my god, how barren. No wonder yeah. you wanted to conceal that. Put the, give me the books. Put the books back. Put okay, the books, the, back. Book, the books are back. Oh god, that was depressing.
1: Uh, I'm, oh. I'm actually well, in a minimum security prison right now. I was going <laughs> to say. It's,
0: it's, can it's, uh, I help you with bail or something?
1: Yeah, it, does, it actually has a, has a, a sort of uh, Batman arc asylum look. Um, it's very pretty the view out here. It's the city of Toronto and everything, but behind me is kind of stark.
0: <laughs> Anyhow, your so, credibility so, is a little low on yeah. what your environment <laughs> is actually like, but, but go ahead and say that you yeah. will.
1: I'm going to move to a different Zoom background so yeah. you can see this. Um, Rebecca Solnit, I think that's her name, has a book called A Paradise Built in Hell, and uh, Sebastian Younger in his book Tribe. They both make the same point, which is people think that for disasters, there's chaos and panic and so on, like, Hurricane Katrina, Katrina or the London Blitz or subway bombings and, 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 you know, in Europe and so on. But in fact, for the most part, when there's disasters, you often see people at their best. They, they get together. They work together. Uh, apparently a lot is anecdotal, but, but rates of depression and anxiety disappear. Mm -hmm. There are many people after the Blitz in London when the Germans bombed them for like 70 days and they went underground and everything described it as the finest time in their life, Mm -hmm. Like really sincerely. And it made them connected into other people. They felt they were actually doing good. Oh yeah. And so it's a reasonable enough model. And the psychologists I'm talking about have applied this model and say, well, wouldn't this happen here? Shouldn't this happen here? Isn't this good news for how we'll remember the pandemic? But the problem is, There's a special cruelty to the situation where we're plainly not on the streets, pulling bodies out of buildings, joining hands in song, marching through together. We are, for the most part, and things are changing, we're getting out a bit now, but for the most of the pandemic, we were locked in isolation. Right. The nicest things we did were retweet something or tip the delivery guy something extra. There's no, there's no, very few of us have pandemic memories of great solidarity and courage and risk
0: yeah. and so on. No, there weren't the opportunities to help each other yeah. out. I mean, because you had to stay away from everyone. It's like, can I borrow a cup of sugar? No, stay the hell away from my front porch. Yeah. Um, And people, you know,
1: they, you know, teachers drove by their, their, their kids, house, their, their students houses and all these sweet actions, um people in the city of New York would share the workers every day at a certain time and all that. It was very nice, yeah. but, but it's not the blitz. Yeah. It's not hurricane Katrina. It's not nine And, and, and analogizing the, the situation now to those things, I think is a mistake.
0: Yeah. I mean, contagion is just a distinctive property. It's like, if you face a common enemy, even if it's inanimate, like whether it's climate change or like a foreign invading power it's just by and large not the case that um it's very easy for you to harm your neighbor in in the course of yeah interaction it's just a distinctive property that that uh that does exert uh, a, a certain kind of uh, divisive effect, I guess. Now, on the, on the so on this piece you were talking about that critiqued uh, these psychologists, you know, it seemed like one unifying theme in the pieces being critiqued was, or at least among a lot of them, was uh, warning people against uncritically following their emotional guides. Like, okay, you're scared. I yeah. understand, but you have to understand this. Now, I, I mean, first of all, I have some sympathy for that, uh, because it seems to me I, I spend a certain amount of time trying to talk people out of being as worried as they are, but, but I would think you would too, because, and here's the book I said I was going to mention. It's called Against Empathy, which is a, uh, as I recall, a, uh, um, an endorsement of human suffering and cruelty—is that a fair? No, that wasn't. <laughs> yes. it. That wasn't it. That wasn't it. What it was was an argument that uncritically following your feelings of empathy can mislead you, can lead society to to misplace its resources, can lead people into various kinds of trouble. So you're you're broadly—that's a good summary. You're broadly sympathetic to the idea that our emotions are often not good guides.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I believe like everyone else who thinks about this, that that emotions are an essential part of life. If you strip a person away, an emotions away from a person, you would lose too much. You'd lose what a lot of what makes us human. You'd also lose, I think what helps people in deliberation, which is often a push and pull of different feelings, but emotions often lead us to make stupid decisions. Our gut misleads us. Um, you know, I was once asked if a, people put up, they had this big question. If you have a billboard, which had a single sort of put any words on a billboard, everybody would see what would you put. And for me, it'd be, don't listen to your heart, hmm. you know. And, and the pandemic is a good case of that. Uh, I think particularly with regards to the underreaction. And here I am doing what, I, what I'm accusing other people of doing, which is I'm not going to explain everything since I know how it all turned out. But people underreacted. And I think one reason why they underreacted is it's not so frightening. It's really hard to walk around and see everybody is okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the world is, seems the sun is shining. People are, and, and being told you have to stay inside. There's an invisible threat. This invisible threat, you will get sick from people who are not sick, who do not look sick. And it will cause you, you know, and, and it's just, it doesn't, didn't feel right. And I think a lot of people who ended up protesting against the social distancing said, you know, it doesn't feel like like there was a threat. It doesn't feel like we resolved anything. So it was all Bill Gates' fault. And so so our emotions our emotions could lead us astray in overrating fears, which happens when we're afraid of flying or afraid of snakes and so on. But it could also cause us to underrate things because our emotions don't plug in exponential growth.
0: Right. And I mean, another distinctive thing about this that I think helps explain, uh, why, I mean, I guess why, uh, the sheer number of deaths maybe hasn't translated in some corners into the amount of alarm you'd expect is it does afflict, um, yeah. older people. And, and I mean, uh, you know, the, the numbers are really quite striking. I think in America, or something, or in the 35, 40 something percent of the people who died have been in nursing homes and maybe more. I don't know. And, you know, there's uh, a couple of things. One is just, if you're a strict utilitarian and ask, well, how many decades of human life have been lost? it's it's a hundred thousand deaths uh average age sixty is very different from a hundred thousand deaths average yeah. age sixteen but but aside from being utilitarian, this is the way human beings naturally um respond. I don't know if you remember there was a study I cited in the moral animal where uh in fact, I think it was a Canadian psychologist, but who was it? It was a Canadian, so maybe you wouldn't recognize the study so what they calculated was that you know from a cold darwinian perspective in other words the perspective that you might expect natural selection to imbue us with um there's a very big difference between losing a one-month-old child and losing an 18 year old child an 18 year old child uh strictly speaking it isn't that you've invested all of this in the upbringing strictly speaking it's the replacement cost of creating another if you will sorry but we're talking Darwinian terms, another asset, another reproductive asset of that value. In other words, 18 years old, ready to go, you know, how long is it, how much time and effort is going to take you to create another one? And, and so they predicted that when you, you know, the, the ages at which, uh, the loss of offspring, you know, should be most, uh, well, unfortunate from a Darwinian perspective, and therefore you might think would be most painful emotionally, would lead to the most grief. And then they did this uh, study that seemed consistent with the theoretical expectation. And in my book, I looked at Darwin's own reactions to the deaths of his different children. Some like huh. right after childbirth, one, his beloved Annie when she was like either 8 or 10. Um, anyway... That's all. I don't know if the uh, this doesn't ring a bell. You're not uh, the an author. No, of this but I, paper.
1: I, I, I'm not. Even though, even though it's Canadian.
0: <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, the author doesn't spring to mind. I can no, find no, it,
1: but- no. But I've but I've heard of that research. There's been other studies since looking at intuitions about age, and yeah, you're. I I don't know the precise research, but is actually theoretically very interesting because it's a nice test of certain evolutionary hypotheses. Mm-hmm. It might predict, for instance, that you would think your judgments would be different if these people in question were your children versus strangers.
0: Well, sure, yeah.
1: It might predict a sex difference yeah. between – so with regard to thinking about girls versus boys, it would be very surprising. We'd like to imagine we're egalitarian when it comes to this, but when you test it right, you might find differences. It's really interesting. And, and I'm a utilitarian, too. So this, is, this comes up a lot less now these days. But during the, the darkest points of the pandemic, the question of do you save a, you know, a 30-year-old or a 70-year-old? And there's actually some research out of a lab asking people these questions and getting their, their intuitions. There are some people who think you shouldn't prefer one over the other, like first come, first serve. There are some utilitarians, and I'm one of them, who thinks you should do prioritizing based on on amount of years left. But, and here I think you'll agree with me, I'm a utilitarian on these things, but I want to distance myself from people who take an extremely cavalier attitude towards the death of the elderly, of which I see some of this on social media, like, who cares? Once you're past 70, once you're past 80, just die already, it doesn't matter. You know, I am... Extremely close to my father and my aunt, both who are in their 80s, and I want very much for them to be healthy. And it'd be a, a tragedy if they, if they got sick. And I would do a lot so they don't get sick. At the same time, you know, it, it I think that, um, that I, it, it matters more. It would be less of a tragedy to die when you're 85 than when you're 35.
0: Well, there's also the fact that with this disease, you have this weird feature where, uh, You don't, if you have an older loved one dying, you don't get to make, have physical contact with them as they're dying or maybe at all before they're dying. You know, my, my father, uh, when he died, we were all with him physically and that meant a lot. And, and, um, and, you know, that, this is a a horrible feature of, of this And, and, and it can really change, I'm sure, you know, alter exactly how painful the memory of it is because there's really something valuable, you know, even if you're not with them when they die, and being able to go in, say the last thing you want to say, whatever. Um it's
1: it's, it's heartbreaking these things. I've I've heard stories like that. You know, and any the funerals over video conferencing. You oh. know, I don't need to remind you, we're mammals. You know, contact is really important. Yeah. And, and not being able to touch somebody, to hug them, to hold them.
0: No, I just saw my daughters, well, today for the first time in a month. And, uh, it's weird. Not, I mean, they don't, I'd be happy to, I'm not, you know, they're mainly worried about them infecting me. Aww. I don't really care about, them, you know, I mean, no, that's not true. That's not true. I just mean, I'm not as apprehensive about that. I do not want to yeah. get sick and die. Don't get me wrong, but I don't feel as apprehensive, but they don't want to do it. And, um, so, you know, that it is kind of strange.
1: It's kind of strange. It's uh, And yeah, and this is, you know, <laughs> you were saying before, everybody experiences this differently. And for everybody like me, who's gone through this fairly unscathed, I mean, you know, I just, I sit at home and I type in my computer, I talk to people by Zoom, which is not enormously different from my life is regularly in non-pandemic times. But for every person like me, you know, there's so many people who, who have had, you know, lost their job, lost their livelihood, lost their business, or had some sort of specific tragedy, like had somebody die on them and couldn't see their, their loved one, you yeah. know, and, and it's, uh, it, it, even in the small scale, it grates on me. I, I, uh, I was hoping to see my son in Connecticut, uh, my older son. And he's, uh, and you know, but if I'm to leave and I probably might be safe to do so, but if I leave Canada, when I come back, I'll have to go through quarantine. Oh really? And you know, I don't want to spend, you've seen how beautiful my house is, but still, I don't want to spend. Oh yeah. The days Victorian,
0: that Victorian <laughs> lamp. I wouldn't leave that for the world. It's, it's yeah, midday. It's beautiful.
1: The birds chirping and everything. <laughs> I
0: can great. almost hear them. Um, so yeah, it's uh. Oh, what else is there? Um, and I don't know this weird. Uh, you know the weird. Uh, and and, and, and I I don't know to the extent to which this. Uh, I mean, first of all, it seems like it may go on for a very long time now, uh, barring a vaccine, that there will be some risk associated with norm- normal human interaction.
1: Yeah, so I got, um, you know, I can do this. I got a mask. It's a Batman yeah. one. I got kind of a, a fancier one. I got, I got masks. By the way, it's really unpleasant to wear a mask. I, it I it realized. Is. You
0: know, I did it for the very first time yesterday because I actually went to a place of business. It was a nursery. I wasn't indoors, but even so, uh, um, and, uh, I have to say it's a pretty good looking mask, but, um, the, uh, you know, and you do wonder how much, um, the, the, the psychology of the, of the, of the lockdown, whether that has interacted with the, uh, with the civil unrest. I mean, it's a, is something I'm hearing now, people speculating, uh, that, um, you know, the cabin fever has contributed to the intensity of this. I don't really have any way of knowing, but it, it seems yeah. plausible.
1: I don't know either. It it, it could interact in, in the other way, which is a lot of the unrest might lead to people getting COVID who wouldn't otherwise get it.
0: Um, oh, that's been speculated yeah. too. And yeah. that seems you're bound, that's bound to be the case to at least some extent. Um, the uh, Although a lot of people are wearing masks. I mean, you know, it's funny. I hadn't anticipated. Uh, I was having a conversation with Mickey Kaus and I was saying, it was in the context of Hong Kong and I was saying, well... I guess the pandemic is kind of hard on the protesters um, because if they have to do social distancing, it's hard to have a really impressive high-density protest. But now I realize it, to the extent that there is going to be actual civil uh, disobedience or whatever you want to call it when people break the law, whether it's violating curfew, uh, smashing windows, it's actually pretty handy to have a mask on.
1: Um, it's a very it, bizarre point of history where protesters would be breaking a law if they took off their masks. Uh,
0: well, yeah, yeah, and they would be more likely to yeah. be caught for breaking another law if they didn't have yes. the convenience of having to wear a mask. Uh, yes. I mean, I'm sure that emboldens some people. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's, you know, back to psychology, there's there's various studies showing that that people, when they hide their face, they um, they lose some individuality. Yeah, there's a psychology of mob behavior of group behavior and simply putting on a mask um, makes you a bit less makes you feel like a little bit less of your own person and more part of a crowd.
0: Well, there's a famous scene in To Kill a Mockingbird uh, where there's a lynch mob at the jailhouse. At least this is in the play. I'm not sure if it's in the novel, but um, and they're wearing Klan masks. Yeah. And once, uh, it's what, it's Scout, the daughter, who first says, Hey, isn't that, aren't you so and so? And identifies one of them, and their identity is known. And then I think maybe they take, one of them takes off a mask, another does, and the mob dynamic dissolves to the extent that they lose their anonymity. Uh, so you would hope, you would hope. Um, so I don't know, strange times, and, uh, I don't know. And it's like right now, I'm, you know, I felt, I mean, we're taping this on Monday. It'll probably post Tuesday. Last night, I felt as if the uh unrest was losing momentum. Um, and I think last night was less turbulent than the night before, but it's clearly not over. And you never know because uh any given thing could revive the momentum. Including and, just some misstep by a you know by a cop yes, or something,
1: yeah, of which there already have been. There
0: already have more, been, but there than than haven't been, there haven't been fatal ones yet. So so you know, and
1: in, in, in what makes this worse is, and again, I'm, I know I'm harping on Trump, but it, it, it is what it is. Um, Trump has absolutely no interest in defusing this. It it is he has no interest in in bringing people together in in in. Actually, addressing the the deep, you know, problems with with race that America has, um, Trump feeds off of it. And um, and he, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying he would probably rather not be in this situation, hiding in the White House as protesters, you know, are charging the gates. He's probably not delighted with this. But the way he'll use it is to further dichotomize and 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 you know, get Americans in oppositional ways further, you know. Embolden white supremacy and all of those, all of those very worst sides of Trumpism.
0: Well, his that, that's his natural move? His instincts are—he uh, he just has kind of polarizing instincts. Now, Steve Bannon claims that on the night of the election, when it was clear he'd won, there was a moment when Trump wanted to come out as the grand unifier. And not be like aggressive in terms of policy and so on, and was genuinely surprised to find the next day that there were these vehement protesters who seemed to want to, you know, uh, burn down Trump Tower or whatever, and that that came as a genuine shock to Trump, which is an interesting comment yeah. in itself that he thought all would be forgiven, um, but but uh, but but apparently, I mean, according to Bannon, he really had for that moment that wish but in any event it's it's not fundamentally in his nature uh i think it's safe to say
1: i think to a large extent trump is apolitical and and trump trump has these deep appetites but if things were different he could come off as a member of the extreme left you know there was a point during his his horrible press conferences during covid where the issue of forgiving student loans uh came up and he said he was going to forgive him Temporarily, and I said, "You know, I've been thinking about forgiving him forever. You know, and somehow, if, if that won him a plot, he would do that." Oh yeah, he, he doesn't drop some deep fiscal conservatism ideas of responsibility. He'll—he's he, unpredictable. He—he—he he, he does what works. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm watching this TV show, The Great. Have you have you seen this?
0: No, it's called The Great.
1: It's uh, based on Catherine the Great, a sort of fictionalized mm-hmm. history. A lot of fun. Um mm-hmm. but the main character is Peter, Peter the Great, and um and he's one of the main characters of Catherine the Great, and he's played as this monster. But deep down he's just immensely insecure and is tremendously hurt by people who don't love him. And he wants to be loved. And he's doing terrible things to be loved. You see a bit of that that in Trump. So much of so much of what's happening with Trump is his feelings get hurt.
0: Yeah. I mean I think above all He wants attention, first of all. That's one of his primary drugs. He wants attention every day. I think he'd be happy, uh, to be held in high esteem, and I think he'd probably prefer that. I think he'd prefer that. I don't think he's so abnormal that he'd rather be disliked than liked. I just think it's if you put him in an environment where the way to get attention and hold it is for a lot of people to dislike him, even if, even as a lot of other people like him, he'll go with that. He'll go, he'd rather have attention that entails a, a pretty large amount of antagonism than no attention at all. That's, yeah. that's my part of my theory of Trump, anyway. Yeah. And,
1: you know, whatever the weaknesses with Biden, Biden suffers from none of these pathologies. And uh,
0: not a, not the same ones, no. I mean, he's a
1: politician. So so he has his love for attention and his love of being loved. But you could imagine him, and he's, he's doing his steps now, trying to, you know, reconcile people, trying to work this out certainly showing, you know, an enormous amount of sympathy for the protesters.
0: Oh yeah. Well, of course that's more, More, I mean, given his constituency, he kind of has to, I mean, not to, not to be too cynical, but how is he, is there a take on Biden in Canada? I mean, there's a certain amount of concern among people in America who would like Trump not to be president that, um, you know, you've heard the basic, the basic concerns about Biden. I
1: I don't talk to enough Canadians, Canadians to know. Yeah. But, uh, you know is there is there um is i have not been following this is there further development on his uh vp pick
0: no i think the thinking is that uh after his one of his more recent missteps where he uh tried to explain to a black man how black men should behave um <laughs> was
1: this one where he said he's not he's not really black if he votes for Trump? he
0: said he said, "If you gotta think about whether who to vote for between me and Trump, you ain't black." Uh, I like the "ain't." Uh, the "ain't" was a good touch, uh, different from some forms of white Um Yeah, uh, but uh, I think the thinking is that that made it more likely. And maybe that's overly near-term thinking. You know, next week yeah. there will be another screw up and, you know, we'll see how that shapes the likelihood of the pick. But the thinking was he probably that increased the chances of an African American. Yeah. Maybe Kamala Harris. Uh, yeah. thinking is also that the civil unrest works against Amy Klobuchar because she was a prosecutor in yes. Minnesota. I mean, I mean, the, 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 this police department was in her jurisdiction. I, I gathered there were complaints against this officer that. I, don't, I think the claim is that it would have been within her discretion to pursue, but I, I don't, I, I don't know. This, yeah. maybe this is just, uh, some I've, of I've heard, I've
1: heard that as well.
0: So who knows? Um, you know, he has said it's going to be a woman. Uh, yes, And I've I think, I think, uh, woman of color has become, if anything, more likely since he said that it would be a woman. And he also said
1: that a Supreme Court nominee would be a woman of color. So, Did he? for her, that's the same debate, the same debate with, um, with, with, uh, Bernie was, uh, he was very specific on that. Hmm. Suggesting maybe he has somebody in mind,
0: but. Oh, there goes my shot at the court, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. You'll just have to wait for the next administration after that.
0: Yeah. Um, so anything else? Uh, f- such a weird time.
1: It is such a weird time. Um, not a, Not a good time, actually. Uh, No,
0: now uh, you know. I was just thinking the classic. You you mentioned the expectation, the you know, a certain amount of actual psychological evidence that common threats can bring people together. Um, A classic experiment, and I don't know. You tell me. Has this experiment? I think this experiment has also undergone a certain amount of reevaluation, as so many classic experiments have, including like the Stanford Prison Experiment. Um, But, you know, the robber's cave experiment. Yeah,
1: yeah. Where Um, they actually...
0: Yeah, you would never be able to do this experiment now, but they took a whole bunch of boys in summer camp who didn't even know they were part of of an experiment, subjected these two... They they created two groups. They gave them names. I don't know, the... The The Rattlers and the Eagles. The Rattlers and the Eagles. And for a while, systematically sowed antagonism between them. Like, I think they would do things like... uh, say, hey, it's going to be a picnic, come to the picnic, and and one group would get there. The other group had already gotten there, eaten all the food and left, or something, stuff like that, where they would make them hate each other, supposedly even fights broke out. But then they showed that you put them in a non-zero-sum game, you tell them that the water pipe to the camp is broken down, a threat that they all face, and they will cheerfully work together. I don't know how much that's held up, but it is kind of the classic example of a of an external threat that is not in human form, which is important because a lot of threats aren't climate change isn't. Yeah. Um, but a threat not in human form exerts a unifying effect. Is that, uh, is that experiment now also viewed as scant? Yeah,
1: it's also viewed as scant. It's, 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 um, people have questioned the veracity of the story. It's a good story. It's maybe too good a story. There are all these attempts. So one you would enjoy with your interest in a, in zero sum and non zero sum interactions, is the boys, each of the boys sent an emissary, uh, and they would meet and have like a summit. And then they would agree, the emissary, the, the ambassadors would agree that everybody go together. Then the ambassadors went back to their own group and their own group shunned them for that. Mm. Um, the experimenters did things like they said, they had like a knife throwing competition. These, <laughs> this is very different times. Um, but that's the story. The, the, the narrative is when face was this common threat, um, Uh, people come together but I think you put your finger on something which I don't know if there's research on this but I bet it makes a difference if the common threat is um is a person is 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 individual I I would think I think we have powerfully evolved coalitional psychology that if somebody um if somebody attacks me attacks you it's just such a, a profound emotions come up that don't come up if you get sick if your building collapses on you, um, I keep meaning to do a study on this, but but when people die due to a terrorist attack, governments give their families enormous amounts of money to compensate. So in 9/11, if the building, if you, you were in the building that came down, the U.S. government would give, would give your family a staggering amount of money. If at the same moment you were in another part of town and okay. then you know and yeah. then you fell down the stairs and broke your neck, they won't give you anything. It, was just, bill, or, as, it yeah. was just
0: as much a piece of bad luck. Exactly. Exactly. You're just as
1: dead. But you're not dead because of a bad person. And uh, and, and, and you're so, not
0: dead as part of a, a a bad person who afflicted the whole nation in a particularly yes. threatening and psychologically activating way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so it's yet another reason why this pandemic might not have the sort of, well, for better or worse may not have the same effect as, as we're, we're together being attacked by a common enemy. You know, we use war as a metaphor. Uh, you know, we're at war with COVID. We're at a war on poverty, war on cancer. And it's a metaphor because we try to get the feelings you get with a real war and extend in these other domains. But you need to use the metaphor because it's just not natural. It's not yeah. how we normally feel.
0: No, it's hard, and I i mean, I've, you know, a big part of my hobby horse is these various uh inanimate, well, non-human threats that afflict the world as a whole and are in principle an argument for international, uh you know, cooperation, global governance in some sense or another, and one of them is very close to what the pandemic was, and, and yeah. that is actual biological warfare, the threat. Yeah. The, yeah. the the fact that more and more people in more and more places do have the capacity to engineer, uh, you know, uh, lethal germs that could be highly can- contagious. And what kills me about what's happened is the pandemic may be creating this huge division in the world between the West and China or between the U.S. and China. And you you need cooperation across that chasm and across all the international chasms if you're – if you're going to do the kind of innovative uh, kind of global governance, it would it would take to really get a fix on uh, on the problem of uh, of biological weapons. So, yeah. ironically, this may increase the chances of dying at the hands of a lethal uh, pathogen.
1: You you really are a fount of good. cheer. I, I
0: am a cheerful person, uh, and and you know this is why people choose to hang out with me. Uh, you know,
1: um, there, there was. Um, this expert, I forget his name, that actually Sam Harris talked to on his podcast. And the guy was cheerful throughout about the whole thing. And, you know, and, and then Sam said, you know, so this is going to be no big deal, I guess, you're sounding. I said, oh, no, you know, on maybe 100,000, hundreds of thousands of people will die. But this is nothing compared to a re- like a bird flu that kills 60% of people. Right. And so, so the guy said, reasonably enough, Unbalanced, utilitarian balance, this could be the best thing that could have ever happened to us.
0: Cause it'll alert us to the larger threat. If, if because of this,
1: we put in preparations so that a flu that could actually be a, a species ending event that right. we could, we could cope with that, this would have been a blessing. But I look at how we're coping with this and I don't know. I think, I think if there was another situation we had to move to lockdown, we'd be able to do it quicker and more efficiently. Yeah. You'd, you'd imagine that certainly. Like a Biden administration would put together things in place? Yeah. Do you think this is going to put us in any way better uh, equipped for climate change, respond to climate change, or make no effect?
0: Ah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I will concede in light of what you just said that it, it could in some ways give us a stronger infrastructure for withstanding a biological weapons attack. But I fear, at the same time, it may decrease the chances that we'll get the kind of global monitoring system that decreases the chances of an attack in the first place. Um, the uh, I don't know climate change. Um, it's a good question. I, I you know I think it will it will unbalance harm if indeed we're seeing a cold war with China. <laughs> yeah, that will uh, you know that will probably decrease the chances of. Uh, the kind of international cooperation you need on that. You know, I have um uh before we go, I have a statistical question for you. Hate to put you on the spot. You should have warned me in advance. I should have warned you, but this this has to do with I got caught uh saying something incorrect and I now understand what the technically correct version of it is. But here here's what it was. It was uh you know, there was a study of this drug Rim and they said, "Well, uh, the it did decrease the chances of death, but not it. Was, that was not statistically significant." Yeah. And the point I made in this podcast with Mickey Kaus, the main point I wanted to make was: look, you shouldn't think of statistical significance as binary. They have chosen this five percent threshold, but j- if it's just barely over the five percent threshold, that's barely over, and if it's barely shy of it. That's almost like being very, barely over it. As, as it happens, this was, well, it, as it turned out, as I later found out, this was just barely shy of the threshold. And moreover, it might have reached the threshold, but they stopped the experiment once they were convinced it was doing some good for ethical reasons because they didn't yeah. want to deprive people of remdesivir. So anyway, but what I said that was wrong was I said, look, um, you know, what a 5% thing would tell you is that you can say uh with 95% um confidence that uh the um it will decrease the chances of death by this amount or greater. Now do you see the flaw in the way I've put that? There is a flaw apparently. Um This is unfair. Way, this is unfair. What is, I've it, done. Here. So
1: tell me what the clause, and I'll nod. The flaw-
0: <laughs> you you do is, not get points for this. This is how I earn a big bucks. <laughs> you do not. You have not passed the test. The uh, maybe if you change your background to a super, an even more academic looking one. Like a lab, yeah, lab that a would lend, lend that. credibility to your nod. But it, it it turns out you can't. It isn't. You can't, the part that you're not supposed to say is, uh, the chances are 95%, uh, that, that, uh, that anything. You're not supposed to start the sentence that way. What you're supposed to say is, if you ask, what are the chances that actually remdesivir doesn't decrease the chances and yet we nonetheless got, got results this dramatic indicating it does. What are the chances of that? The chances of that are only 5%. The chances that the null hypothesis is true, but we got these results affirming the opposite of the, of the null hypothesis, the hypothesis are only 5%. Yeah. Now that turns out not to be the same as saying we can say with 95% confidence, that the hypothesis is true
1: no the the statistics to to zoom in the statistical significance does not tell you whether or not your hypothesis is correct or not
0: well it doesn't even give you it does it apparently doesn't even give you the right to say there is a certain percentage chance of that
1: it doesn't bear on your hypothesis in any interesting way what it does is it, it addresses the question you're comparing two groups and you have two piles of numbers and it says, um, it addresses the, the issue in some way whether these numbers were drawn from different samples, whether there's a real difference between them. And it doesn't say why there's a real difference. It doesn't say what direction the real difference is, which one gets bigger. It's just that there's a real difference as opposed to null hypothesis, which is you're drawing from the same sample. So, so, so suppose I have two groups and one of them I, I uh, do nothing. They're sick. And the other one, they're sick and I randomly separate, randomly two groups, and then when I say a prayer over. Well, some proportion of the time, one time out of 20, right. the group I said a prayer over will do better than the other group.
0: Well, right. But if you, my question is, if you know that one time in 20, and only one time in 20, I mean, that that we know, I think. But, but yep. you know, but just by virtue, I mean, of course, you have to make some simplifying assumptions. You have to say... The the division of the groups into two was truly random. Yep. there are no, you know, there was nothing about the process yep. of selection that would have biased the the groups in any ways relevant to the outcome of this experiment. You have to assume that, and you yep. can't always assume that. Like for example, in opinion polls, and you you know, when people may have different reasons for not picking up the phone or refusing to talk to you yep. that may be related to their political views, but but leave that aside. If you assume that none of that is in play uh then you can say what the chances are like how many times one in 20 whatever, when you have this sample size and and, and he and and, an, and here's the size of the total population, okay, total population 300 million, sample size five thousand um, you know, you can um, uh, well, or, and, or the two sample sizes in the case of random selection, you can say what the chances are that you would get results of a certain magnitude by chance alone. I yeah. still don't understand why you can't translate that into some statement about the likelihood that your hypothesis is correct. Now, I'm willing to concede that maybe if what you know is that there's, there's only a, a 5% chance that if the null hypothesis were true, you'd get these results, I'm willing to concede that maybe that doesn't translate into specifically a 95% level of confidence in your hypothesis. What I don't understand is why it can't be translated into some level of confidence, in, into some statement of the form, look, x percent of the time that you get these results, it's going to turn out that they are representative of the universal population that these samples were drawn from. It, I I just think intuitively it must be the case that you can say something like that. I am not giving up on this, Paul.
1: Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'll rather than take this head on, I'll make a <laughs> distinction, which is, worth, which is worth knowing. And okay. this will be a, the first time in a right show a distinction has been made. We're talking about statistical significance, which is basically the, the odds of whether or not something will happen by chance or not right. by chance. Right. There's a separate concept, which is actually really important, and nobody ever talks about this. Confidence which is interval or no? Effect size, which is how big the difference is. Mm-hmm. So there could be a drug that would increase your chance of surviving a pandemic by a fraction of a percent. Mm-hmm. But if we tested a big enough sample, we can know we can have tremendously significant findings, but it's a really significant findings, but a small effect. Right. Right. You could also have, you know, 0.05 or 0.0, 0.0.1 for that matter right. and have an enormous effect. So this is the odds. The odds are sort of, one in ten uh, that that this is chance, but if it's true, it's in this enormous effect. And both, yeah. concepts, both concepts are important. The odds of well, being I'll- right and the odds of, and if you're right, how big an effect is, are both really important for sort of interventions.
0: Yeah, actually, I may have misstated something earlier. I mean, there's also the question, um, like if you get a very big effect size in your sample you can yes. ask the question well what are the chances that there is an effect of some size in this direction in other yeah. words given this this sharp decrease in death rate with a sample this size what are the chances that there is at least some uh, de- increase you know change in the death rate in this direction yeah um but at this point i'm too con- uh, confused to even know which which of these it is, it is kind of standard for the uh, statistical analysis to shed light on? And, I mean, they're, they're different questions, but, and, but and you're right,
1: we, I mean, one thing you said was very true and is important, which is that we talk about statistically significant and non-significant. So, I, you know, I write an article, I say, these effects were significant, these weren't. And I right. talk about it in a binary way, like, like you say someone should be allowed to drink and someone shouldn't. But like that example, it is a socially arbitrary point. And a lot of psychologists and statisticians have pointed out um, that we should have different levels of significance for different things, so for different questions, Uh depending on the cost-benefit analysis. Suppose something would be, um, if you were wrong about something, it would be disastrous. This is is super
0: hypothetical, I should add.
1: Yes. Okay. If you were wrong, it would be disastrous. Mm. You'd want a very high significance level. Uh, on the other end, if it was something where if you were right, it would be fantastic. Right. Um, but if you were wrong, it wouldn't be such a big deal. Suppose the claim is that eating uh, an extra carrot each day cures cancer.
0: Yeah.
1: And Suppose you found it 0.05. Well, by all means, eat a lot of carrots. That sounds right. great. But, um, but for other things, the, the, the cost-benefit ratio shifts around. In more mature science, sciences like physics… They won't take you seriously unless you have a significance ratio of like 0.0000 and a long stream till you get to one. Huh. Well, psychology has settled on point oh five. There's been a movement to change this to point oh one.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Well and, you know, and, and then the trade-off is you are you are you will publish fewer false findings, but you will miss out on certain true findings.
0: Yeah. Well, if your average sample is, uh, 14 undergraduates at an American college, you just really can't, can't demand too much in the, in the way of the, the,
1: the we, we, we do better than that, Bob. Now we have 14 people online.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's much better. Yeah. Uh, cause we know that'll be a random sample. Um, so yeah, so sorry to, I don't know. I, I continue. I'm holding out. I really think there should be something you can say of the form. Uh, when you get results like this, uh, it will turn out. If you imagine God coming down and telling you whether the results you got uh, are reflected in the, uh, to some extent at least, in the general population, that will turn out to be the case x times out of a hundred or whatever. That 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 I I just have to think that there's a statement that be- of that form that you so, could infer from the statistics, and I ain't giving up.
1: So I'll tell you something, and and um. There's people to listen to on this, like Daniel Atkins is a very smart guy and does work on statistics and methodology and so on. He's active on Twitter and you know has a lot to say. It's the sort of thing where everybody says people talk about significance wrong. Mm-hmm. And then the experts say, and here's the right here's what 0.05 people.5 0.05 means. And then they always say something subtly different than the next person. And there's there's sort of a way right. to talk about it, which is which is the correct way. But it's not that the odds of your hypothesis being correct you could you could have the difference between the groups that your hypothesis predicts but your hypothesis itself um might might be wrong
0: well your hypothesis there's always a chance your hypothesis could be wrong that's the whole point of this since you didn't study the entire population but but i i mean i guess i would say uh like, with public opinion polling, if you make the obviously false assumption that your, 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 uh, your selection is actually random, which it never is, but assume it was. Assume it's like randomly picking balls out of a jar. And, uh, uh, then, with that assumption in hand, I, I thought it was the case that you could say that, uh, the chances are X, this percent, that the real results in the population at large mm-hmm. are within, you know, two percentage points on either side of our finding. I thought you could begin a statement yeah. like that. Say the chances are this percent that this finding is blah blah blah. That you you are allowed to begin that statement that way. I thought, and 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 if so, I I, I don't see these two questions as fundamentally different. But
1: well, I'll give you a reason. A reason why you can't do that, um, which is imagine you, um, you want to compare two samples, Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. You scooped up the samples, but imagine the way the world works is for everything you're interested in, they are exactly identical. That's just that that's the truth of this.
0: So, so actually, Democrats and Republicans don't differ along any observable variable for
1: all the variables you're interested in. Okay. Suppose you're interested in in you know sensitivity to different smells or spices or something like that. And it turns out that's the truth. Then you do 20 independent statistical tests looking mm-hmm. for a difference. The odds are that at least one of them will turn out to be significant by chance.
0: Well, it depends on st- your sample size.
1: No, if the odds are – if significant has happened if, – if you get a false positive one or okay. 20 times. Yeah. And then you do 20 tests, you're going to find some false positives just by chance.
0: Well, right, but but I mean, let's say your whole universe is a thousand Democrats and a thousand Republicans. That's the whole universe, yeah. If you sample ten of each, then it's going to be your chances are probably more than uh, one in twenty of getting something uh, by chance alone that seems significant but isn't. But if you sample nine hundred of each, that number goes down, right? No. Well, oh, well, you're saying that this is what a 5% statistical significance yeah, thing right. means. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what means.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but it sets up the sort of paradoxical spot. And this is actually a problem in, in actual psychology. This is not a hypothetical where it used to be one of the problems with replication crises. A guy like me would do a study, would have like 15 different statistical tests. One of them would work out by chance. And then I'd build a paper around that. Right. There's a story, I forget who it is, of a statistician who looked at this enormous data set and found, for medical reasons, this they found, found, was looking to see for gender differences in heart condition or so on. And he was then asked, could you break it up into more, into like looking at, um, uh, say, you know, different ethnicities, different parts of the country. And he said, no, because once I break it up, the odds of getting spurious findings by chance grow. He says, I could break up an astrological sign." And I'll guarantee you, you will find statistically significantly, Aries do better than Sagittarius. Yeah. You know, so.
0: I've always, I mean, I've always thought that like retrospective selection of variables has a kind of utility. You should just be honest about it. You should say, I found this one thing and now somebody else should go do an experiment where that's the hypothesis being tested.
1: I think you're right. you shouldn't act think, like it was
0: the hypothesis right. being tested.
1: Right. But the prompt of replication crisis is the paper would never be reported as as just a crazy ass thing. We never would have expected that this happen. Right. Rather, people because we're faulty creatures, we're not sneaks, but we're faulty creatures. You write it, you deal with the data, this is your finding. You sit in a lab meeting. All of a sudden, that's exactly what you would have expected. That you know that men do better than women, except it's on a weekday then women do better than men. Mm-hmm. That's exa- and then you build a paper around that. So one solution is that psychologists have come to is pre-registration. It's the equivalent of calling your shots. You put in right. a publicly available repository, we predict this. Now, if you get something else, you still report it. Right. But then it's out there as an accident. And people take it, you've been predicted, so it could have happened, more likely to have happened randomly. And then you build from that.
0: Well, a related thing is, given that in the online world, it doesn't cost you anything to publish data, why shouldn't everybody just now post all their data? And, and I mean, especially when money's on the line, like when when this, what was it, Moderna is the name of that company that said, oh, we have meaningful um uh, vaccine results. And they may well. I'm not saying they don't. But they kind of dis- describe them in sketchy way, and their stock goes up by five percent. It's like yeah. shouldn't there be? Shouldn't the Securities and Exchange Commission say if you were if you are a corporation that reports financially significant results, you have to the moment you've said anything, all the data have to be online. What yeah, would be wrong absolutely. with that? Absolutely,
1: nothing. Uh, I think practically, practically for a guy like me, sometimes you just mess around. You try to see if this works, if this works, sure. and then you follow up something that works. And you're not going to publish everything like an experimental paper, but for something like a medical test yeah. where it's really important, what you don't want to do is, you know, try it this way, try it this way, try it this way. And then like number 10, it works. Report it yeah. as if none of the other nine had ever happened.
0: Now, what, what is exactly does the term P-hacking mean? P is the, the number, the variable for statistical significance, right? What yes. is – what does P-hacking refer to something that you – because it is one of the great scourges of yeah. psychology uh, in the recent past, apparently. Does it refer to one of the things you've just described, one of the abuses? It refers
1: to typically unintentionally without any malice doing, doing statistics on all your data, um, sooner or later and then look for things that are significant.
0: Okay. So, yeah, if you well, do enough
1: you... tests sooner or later we'll, we'll, um, you'll do it. So there's you can this... either
0: redo the test until you get a good P or you can look for which variable happened to have a good P. Is that both of those That's... are P hacking?
1: Both of those would be P hacking. Yeah. Um, th- there's a range of sins that come out. Typically it's you have a data set and you just kind of look at, where you, you look at, at it every which way. Mm -hmm. And some stuff tends to work. So there was a paper that got the replication crisis going. And I think it's by, I did not do my homework on this. Uh, I think it's by uh, Joe Simmons and his colleagues, published in Psych Science. And it was a paper that blew everybody's mind. And it was like, it was, it traumatized the field.
0: What was the finding?
1: The finding was that if you listen to the Beatles song, When I'm 64,
0: backwards, get, it says Paul is dead no yeah. different
1: you get when you listen to the song when I'm 64 you end up getting older and Wait, so, getting older sam- and sample samples that that listen to when I'm 64 turned out to be older than those who didn't <laughs> the, the point the point being the point I got to tell you the, the punchline. There. the point being what they did was they simply had a bunch of people look at when I'm 64 listen to, to the song and others didn't and then they did a whole bunch of analysis. And then they said, "This is our finding." And their point was an existence proof. If you had to do enough analyses, you could find every study would be something interesting and non-intuitive. Yeah. So, so take this and take this in. in um, take a drug. You take a drug. You give half of the people a drug, half of the people no drug. There's no difference. But you're not happy with that. So you see that it what, did it cause a difference in men? What about women? What about right-handers versus left-handers? People from the, from urban versus rural, you keep looking. If your sample size is big enough, pretty soon you find, oh, my God, um, colorblind people mm-hmm. are affected by the drug. And is that a real finding? Well, maybe. But yeah. such findings are going to appear no matter what.
0: I mean, and I so- I still like the idea of looking for this stuff. It's like when you've, yep. you know, when you've got a ton of genomic data, for example. Absolutely. And you, if you have a database, and ideally anonymized for purposes of privacy, but if you have people's DNA sequences and the diseases they've had, that is valuable stuff, and you should look yep. for correlations. But then once you've found the correlations, that's, right. you, that's when the serious study begins.
1: That's right. And I know a lot of people who do studies. They don't preregister them. They look for a lot of things. They have ideas of what they're doing. That's why they're doing the study. And then once they get a result, they do study two, which is pre-registered. And said, you know, we predict that there'll be an effect among colorblind people and non-colorblind people. And then if you get it, then you know you're dealing something real.
0: Right. Now, is pre-registering really catching on?
1: Um, in some fields of psychology more than others, in some journals more than others. I mean, yeah, why not like,
0: all? Why, does, why shouldn't it be done by everyone?
1: I pre-registered most of my studies. Some are simply meant to be exploratory.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, that's know? a valid, valid thing, and, I guess. And it's, I it's guess what I would thing. say is why not just say we're only going to publish pre-registered studies. The others are exploratory.
1: You might want to publish exploratory studies. Okay. Um, I'll give you an example of some research done in my lab, uh, led by Maddie Wilkes, who's a postdoc. We're interested in kids who choose to become vegetarian so there's a small population of kids moral that veg- who become vegetarian even though their parents eat meat so we got a lot of data from those kids we compare them to people who kids who just regularly eat meat and kids who are vegetarian because their parents are vegetarian and we're interested in a whole bunch of different diff- possible differences in disgust sensitivity yeah. in intelligence and so on so we give a, we lay a whole bunch of tests on them and We've actually pre-registered this because we wanted to be clear what we're going to do, what our analyses were. Um, but in some way, it's kind of exploratory. We have some ideas we're playing around with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I, I, am glad. I, I'm glad. I, without warning you at all, that was, uh, that was something coerced you into having a little seminar on stats because it was good for me. I'm, I ain't giving up on my position. I, you know, uh,
1: the whole there are so many of my colleagues if they listen this long and they hear. Me associated with the phrase seminar and stats, and it would just, <laughs> would really, just really be hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, you know, I, well, I keep, I keep up, but I'm not a stats maven.
0: Well, I, uh, you know, I wish we could keep going, but it looks like those flowers behind you need watering, Paul. <laughs> that's right.
1: I also have to reorder
0: my books. <laughs> also, those books could use reorder. Listen, you've got a great idea. the the uh, the, the one where you get to to choose the uh, the books. Uh, you know. A little a little Zoom backdrop.
1: I'm not going to name names, but on Twitter, somebody I know posted a little thing saying, just, just chill in with my morning coffee and sitting down there with morning coffee. And behind him is a bookshelf. And you have never seen a more curated set yeah. of books, you know. Got a bit of Malcolm X. Some yeah. Frege, some good philosophy, good novels, a little yeah. bit of something funny there, some feminist literature. Everything was, was it was perfectly catered, and I'm thinking, how long did it take him to do that?
0: It's probably just his Zoom background.
1: It's probably just a, it's just, it is a great business, but you
0: definitely it, it's definitely become kind of a pastime of mine now that everybody on the cable news networks is being interviewed from their homes is like checking out like what their bookshelf says not about their actual reading reading habits of course but about the, the image they're trying to project.
1: And and I know what you're looking for. I know what you're looking for. You you know you could get a sense of what your books look like from, from that angle. And you kinda of peek and say, is that the moral animal?
0: Hey that- I did uh I did see my one of my books. I didn't see it. Somebody calls my attention on Chris Hayes show, MSNBC I, I forget whoever it was who had it on their bookshelf, I now followed them on Twitter. I now trust them as as a guide to all things very yeah. nice very nice yeah.
1: i had heard from somebody this isn't a friend of a friend story but that they, they 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 saw a book uh, by a famous cognitive psychologist in a porn video <laughs> 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 cuz sometimes these videos have background and, it's, it's, well, and it's, it's,
0: better than the other way around better than a cognitive psychologist <laughs> on the cable news having a porn video in the background yes there we go um, okay. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. This has been illuminating as always. Uh, as always. I'll let you get back to your Canadian paradise with its, okay. fake, its fake backgrounds and every and and.
1: It, it, it's open to you, Bob. Whenever, whenever you want. You okay. I may there.
0: I may be borrowing one of your backgrounds any moment. Okay. Thanks. See you next okay. time.
1: See you next time.